Hey there, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards, and today our story starts nearly 100 years ago in Croatia. It involves Nazis and communists and a long, crazy journey to Napa Valley. My guest today is someone I've wanted to talk with for a long time, so let's get going. Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer. Welcome back to The Taste. Today's guest is from a well-known, long-time, top-quality Napa winery. I'd like to welcome a fellow vintner who's followed a very similar path as mine, working side-by-side with her father to produce great wines, Violet Gergich of Gergich Hills. Welcome. Thank you so much, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. We're still finishing up harvest, so um, thanks so much. And Really been looking forward to this, to talking to you. A lot to cover. Gerga Chills has been around for 45 years, if I did my math right. And so uh, a yeah. lot of stories, both you, your dad, and a lot of family history, mostly around wine. So I think we should start way, way back and with your dad and his family. Um, for those of you who may not know, Mike Gergich, Violet's dad, was one of the founders of Gerga Chills Winery. Uh, but a long time before that, he was born in the 20s in Croatia, and his father was a winemaker. Is that right? Did I get that right, Violet? You sure did. So talk to me. How far back does winemaking go with you guys? Winemaking is sort of part of Croatian peasant blood. My father grew up in a very small, very poor village in Dalmatia, which is the coastal region of Croatia, and especially well known for its wines. But pretty much everybody there made everything that they produced. One of the most important things was wine. You drank wine every day, um, not just because you liked it, but because it, there was actually a practical reason. Uh, the water was often known to make you sick. So if you mixed it with wine, you not only would not get sick, but it'd be a lot easier working in the fields. So wine was something that was, you know, they didn't have a winery. You know, the kids, you know, all stomped grapes. My dad talks about how he went from stomping grapes and and, uh, actually enjoying it. But he also went, I guess, from going from breast milk to wine. So that's how he started. And uh, I guess he thought that this was very exciting and very passionate. His dad was known as the best winemaker in the village. That, I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Everybody's making mm-hmm. wine. And now, Absolutely. So he, was make, so he was part of making wine from as far as he can remember, is what you're telling me. Literally, and I think before he can remember. So, you know, the parents would throw, especially the young kids in the grape vat, and they were self-contained, and they didn't need <laughs> to worry about running after while they were off harvesting. So, you know, child care and work at the same time. I love it. I love it. And I love that whole idea about you got to drink wine every day at every meal just to, you know, for your health reasons. So I'm going to try that. I'm going to run that up the flag at home and see if it works. I won't, <laughs> well, I won't my dad's go. 99, <laughs> I, I, so he de- it definitely works. So I won't, yeah, I won't get much mm-hmm. work done. But, you know, if you cut mm-hmm. it 50-50 mm-hmm. with water, that's not bad. That works. That makes sense. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. I'll try that one. So as he grew up, um, he had a tough go, he and his family. There were... Um, living in a challenging place to live with World War II and the communist takeover. Um, Can you tell me some of the things he and his family went through? He actually went through quite a bit, um, originally starting with his father going uh, to World War I. The average number of kids in the village was 16, 
and his father was away for five years, and therefore they only had 11 children. But his mom single-handedly, you know, did all the work in the, you know, for the family and the village. And then once the Italians came over and took over Dalmatia, um, he had a number of experiences where he was absolutely certain he was going to get killed. He was, hmm. you know, held at gunpoint. He was arrested. He was interrogated. He was mistaken for a uh, communist guerrilla by the same name of Milenko Gurgic. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up surviving. Um, finally, I think when the Germans came, uh, they burned his village down. And to this day, you can still see the ruins of the house he was born in. Uh, it's mostly um, mostly stone, but one of these days, I have a chance. I'd love to rebuild that and bring it back into use again. Wow. Wow, what a what a what a childhood! How tough! Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. but uh, but he he survived, as you said. He moved on. He ended up at uh, studying wine at the university. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, he actually started studying business, and uh, because he heard they needed bookkeepers, and after he worked for a year for the town of Metkovich, which was close to where the town he grew up, um, he realized that all he had for his troubles was a cabinet full of papers, and decided hmm. he didn't want to end his life with seventy cabinets full of papers, and uh, went back to wine because he actually had a passion for wine. He had a ha- and it's you know wine is something that brings you close to nature between grape growing and winemaking. And so he ended up studying viticulture and enology at the University of Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia. Wow. And then, okay, so Croatia, California, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France, lots of really great wine regions close by. I mean, what mm-hmm. are you doing? Especially back then, because this was, well, when he got out of school, what time period are we talking about? He, so we're he, talking about um, the for, um, late 40s, early 50s. Right. So California, and, yeah, wasn't on the map. So how did mm-hmm. how do you, how do you get to California, and why California? I'm just fascinated by that one. Well, it actually was Napa Valley specifically, and that's a pretty amazing story. His favorite <laughs> professor uh, actually ended up taking a year of sabbatical to UC Berkeley, of all places. And now, of course, the communists are completely in control at this point, and they are always and they said horrible things about the United States and what it was like and how terrible it was. And so when his professor finally came back, he wanted to know, well, what exactly is the United States like? And his professor was very reluctant to speak to him because, again, communist spies, they could get into big trouble. Turned out he actually did get into big trouble, but Hmm. um, he told my dad that America was a place where you could actually achieve your dreams. And he told him that Napa Valley was paradise. (laughs) He'd been there. He was impressed. He recognized that the terrain, the geography, the, the, the climate, and that literally inspired my dad. So when his professor finally got into trouble and was retired early, and he, Mm. my dad also heard the secret police were after him, he ended up escaping to Germany. Uh, He had um, actually the very first year that they issued United Nations visas for students to go and study and then come back after the summer. And he already had this visa, but he ended up leaving earlier than he was expected to. He didn't quite finish his master's degree um, and he fled and he'd been collecting American dollars because he knew he wanted to go to 
Napa Valley, um, but he actually had somebody sew those into the sole of his shoe. So he escaped. Um, he was actually in Germany for um, over four years. He worked with a family called the Franks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a large farm. They actually developed seeds. So he worked on the farm, always trying to figure out how was he going to get to Napa Valley. And it turns out that... Um, well, it's, it's, it's a long story and actually a lot of details in his book, which is called A Glass Full of Miracles. But um, he ended up uh, accepting uh, a visa to Canada. Couldn't get the American one, but he figured Canada was next door. And apparently they had a need of lumberjacks in the Yukon. <laughs> so he actually he actually got a visa to become a lumberjack. And for those of you guys who, who yeah. know my dad, uh, yeah, who's, no. who's, who's pretty he, short, you can't really imagine him being a lumberjack. No, I, it's no, pretty I, funny. A, I, can't get, I can't get there. But no, Violet, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I got to mm-hmm. roll, the, roll the tape back. The, he heard the mm-hmm. secret police were after him. What were they after him mm-hmm. for? What, were they, what was going uh, on? Because his professor had spoken to him. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, growing up, my dad was concerned about communist spies in America. He was Mm -hmm. concerned about ensuring that he would remain free. And in fact, he never dared to go back to Croatia uh, because he'd heard what had happened to some people that he knew, some Croatians that he knew through the communist government. And he didn't go back until Croatia had actually declared independence from the state of Yugoslavia. And wow. that was in 1991. Wow. Yeah. And so he, he had an... So he fled. I'm interrupting. I apologize. But geez, okay. many, I mean, you know, he left his parents, his mom, his brothers and sisters. He, he just, he took off. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, that's tough. That's really yeah. tough. Yeah. And not knowing if he'd ever see them again. And then Germany for four years, working on a farm, mm-hmm. but he still had mm-hmm. Napa Valley. Boy, you know, I didn't know all this. Yeah. This is fascinating. Okay, so mm-hmm. he's in Canada, and then somehow, mm-hmm. he gets, and somehow he gets across the border. How do you mm-hmm. do that? So he placed an ad in the Wine Institute, and <laughs> uh, he said he, was, he would work for $100 a month. I know it's hard to imagine, but um, so he ended up being hired by Lee Stewart at Souverain Cellars. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners know of Lee Stewart. Uh, for my dad's book, it was almost impossible to find a photograph because he was such a humble man. Uh, but Warren Finyarski of Stag's Leap also worked with Lee Stewart uh, as part of his education, learning how to make wine. So wow. that's how he made it to Napa Valley. And uh, what was amazing was that his very first morning, he shows up at Souverain Cellars and he's in shock because he sees a vineyard and it looks exactly like his native grape, Plavatsmali, that grows in Croatia. Okay. So he thought, what is this? I've arrived in Napa. I don't know anybody yet. And yet I have a friend in these vines. Later on, it was found out through his efforts that uh, Zinfandel actually originated in Croatia and was the parents of that Plavatsmali grape. That's right. And then, mm-hmm. and you guys still make Zinfandel, Kyrgyz? We, we absolutely do. There you go. It's not, <clears throat> it's not the kind of Zinfandel that most people think a California Zinfandel is. Ours is lighter. It's got amazing balance. And in fact, one time it won a Pinot Noir competition. So <laughs> not go. your, not your it. typical Zinfandel. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. it. Um, so he shows up in California. I think it's around late 50s, right? 58, something like that. Is that about the right 58. time? 58. Yes. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he gets mm-hmm. in. Um, he's, boy. And how, how was, did he speak English? He did. He okay. did. He actually had a great education. He spoke English, of course, with an accent. Um, and that remains to this day. So some, sometimes he puts on a little heavier accent just for fun, you know, but, uh, 
Yeah. That's yeah. That's when he has the twinkle in his eye. I, I've seen that. Mm-hmm. I've seen that play. Um, mm-hmm. And but no, no career as a lumberjack. He skipped over that, which was good. That makes nope, sense. Nope. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned his. Mm-hmm. So he. I didn't realize he had a book out. Uh, can you tell me the title again so people can look for it? That's Absolutely. It's called A Glass Full of Miracles. Okay. Good. And it's both here at the winery and also on Amazon. Right, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to send you a book or maybe drop it off in person because I haven't seen you in ages. Yeah, and well, I'd, uh, I'd, I think you'll enjoy it. I'd love to read it. Thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. he's at Souverain. And then um, now that was Souverain here in Napa because I know there was one Sonoma, I think. But it was correct. Oh, Souverain, that's where Rutherford Hill is now, correct? Is that right? It's actually Burgess. Okay. So, okay. yeah, Burgess. Tom Burgess ended up buying the winery, changing the name to Burgess. And uh, my understanding is how um, Lee got the name was I guess he picked it out. He had uh, a few names and uh, he gave it to his daughter to, to take to her class and had them all pick out of a hat and so that's the one that they picked uh, which coincidentally is how I got my name so um, I guess my dad thought that was a rather uh, charming American thing to do <laughs> that's a good one so mm-hmm. he's he's here early on he's here way before you know the 70s and all that so who who are some of the folks that he worked with in making wine and, and mm-hmm. um, I know because I know he worked with a bunch of folks can you help us out with that one Absolutely. So uh, first was Lee Stewart. He essentially worked harvest and then after harvest wasn't needed. Uh, So he then went to work for Christian Brothers and that was a family connection. He actually ended up coming to um, America and actually getting a job in Canada when the lumberjack thing didn't work out. Um, His nephew, who was a priest in Washington, connected him with uh, Vancouver University and he became a dishwasher. Um, So that's how he got out of being a lumberjack. But he also made a connection with him with Christian Brothers. And so he worked with Brother Timothy for a year. I think most people have heard about Brother Timothy. And uh, after that, he had the opportunity to work with Andrei Chelichev. And he'd actually heard of Andre. He had heard that he was the only vintner who actually had studied at the Pasteur Institute in France, that um, the Marquis de Pence had brought him over to help improve the quality of Beaulieu Vineyard's wines. And he definitely was one who literally brought both science and art to winemaking, um, especially because, you know, after Prohibition, things never really came back to the way they used to be prior. And Andre was a huge force in ensuring that that happened. Um, he was known as the Dean of California Winemakers. Uh, he had so many students, it's impossible to count them. And he was um, teaching even, you know, until his deathbed, as from what I have heard. So he was very inspirational for my father, and uh, he really wanted to meet him. And after a few months, when Andre finally granted him an audience, um, he was shocked because he spoke to him in Croatian. And my dad went, how, how is it that you speak Croatian? Wow. He said, well, you know, after our family fled, they were on the wrong side of the, the war in Russia. And I guess he um, worked as a traveling uh, musician and singer and dancer in uh, circuses throughout Croatia, throughout Yugoslavia. So he learned the language. Andrei Chalashev did? Yes, yes. Okay, that's um, a new one. Haven't heard that one yet. (laughs) That's a new one. (laughs) Wow. So... uh, 
Yeah. So he, my dad uh, uh, worked for him for nine years and uh, he really, really loved it. He learned so much from him. He, he always says every single person that he worked for and worked with, he learned from. Um, everybody's, you know, something a little bit different. And with Andre, Andre was so passionate about wine in terms of just quality, but also in terms of the science, in terms of the research as well. So he and Andre, while he was there, actually developed um, the process of utilizing millipore filtration for fil filtering devices. They, they'd heard about it. Nobody had been able to do it successfully. They were the first ones who did it successfully. Uh, they also worked on developing um, yeasts. So he and Andre, I think, worked on, I think it was the, the what do you call it, the, the French, uh, French white that mm -hmm. uh, right. became a standard that was used in winemaking. Or they developed that. Yeah. Exactly. Also conducted the first industrially induced malolactic fermentation, uh, which was also pretty much. So it was there was always innovation there, um, but also a lot of passion. And uh, that's something that my dad had naturally, I think, as a Croatian person, but also being a scientist, when you're able to combine those things, you create a some greater, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. Right. So, I can picture those two working together. I can I can yeah. see it, and and that mm -hmm. was and that was before anything really hit. And that, you know, that filtration mm -hmm. thing's big because, you know, that it didn't really happen. I don't think in this state until um, people figured out the filtering thing because you had wines mm -hmm. that would go you know go weird and go off in the bottle and it wouldn't be that mm -hmm. good. So getting getting clean, sound wines was a big step to you know, getting better and better quality just so people could right. know that know that it was going to be solid. I mean, right. Um, and, and actually talking about clean, that was another thing that he learned from Lee Stewart. Lee Stewart hmm. was extraordinarily precise. He had learned from Andre Chalachev. He'd written everything down in a notebook and he religiously followed every single little thing. Um, he also was completely, um, uh, phobic about uh, microbes and everything was always cleaned, was always sterilized. And my dad realized, especially coming to Bouvie, that one of the reasons that wines were inconsistent in terms of quality was lack of that sterility. Mm -hmm. Not just sterility, but also you want to top your tanks up. You want to top your barrels up. You don't want to leave that air that can expose, um, again, additional microbial growth that can spoil the wines. Right. So it was, um, there was a lot of stuff that he learned and it was very exciting. And I realized he, he didn't end with, um, with, uh, Andre Chelichev, but, uh, it's funny cause he said, well, you know, Andre had a son and, uh, he, son was, I'm sure going to take over. So I needed to go somewhere else. So where does he go? But, uh, Robert Mondavi, who has two sons and a daughter. Um, but um, Robert really, really wanted my dad to come work for him. He was impressed with what he had done at, um, at Bouillou Vineyards. He knew that uh, Andre was especially known for his red wines, his private reserve Delatour Cabernet, George Delatour Cabernet. Um, Robert had more experience with white wines. And so when my dad came to Robert Mandavi, Robert Mandavi, he brought that knowledge with him. And in fact, he was the one that made the wine that put Robert Mandavi on the map. And that was the 1969 Cabernet. Got so, it. yeah, that yeah, was uh, that a lot was of people have forgotten that. You know, my, yeah. my dad's not just a, you know, one song wonder, as they call it, or one hit wonder. Uh, so he started with the Cabernet there. He also made Robert Mandavi's very first Fumé Blanc. Okay. Robert, um, most people 
don't know, most people think of Robert Mondavi as a winemaker and as a force of nature. And it's absolutely true that he's a force of nature, but he really was a marketer. And so not only, you know, he, he was more instrumental in making Napa Valley famous, probably even than the Paris tasting, even though that 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 literally put it on the map, but just that alone wouldn't have done it without Robert's belief that Napa could someday produce wines that could be as good as the French. Oh yeah, and so yeah, that and was so some, that that was the speech. You know, he gave it forever, and it just you know mm-hmm. it worked, and you know just he believed it, and and he mm-hmm. shared, as you know, you know he they Mandavi always shared their ideas with everybody. You know, I they, uh, they helped me out. I remember going over there and talking to a guy one time. Um, mm-hmm. so big leader, but don't want to get too far ahead. I want to back up a sec. So tell me about your mom. What's mm-hmm. her story? Well, my mom actually, uh, they met in Croatia and it's a very interesting story. My mom's younger sister and my dad's niece happened to be best friends. Okay. And when, um, his niece was going to school in, uh, in Split, which is where they lived at the time. And also at that time, the war was going on and so they had she lived with the family and apparently at one point as a young teenager she went to visit um, her friend uh, in her hometown which is the little village where my dad was born and apparently she was traveling first by boat and then by train and there happened to be a, a gentleman who was sitting next to her and asked her so where are you going and oh you know so he was asking a lot of questions and she was a little scared but it turns out that once they got there he uh, he said so so you know where are you going and he says well I'm, i sent it you know i'm going to see my friend oh where is she oh she's in Desna. oh and how how do you know she's gonna be there well i sent a telegram she didn't get when did you send it it was so interestingly enough because you know he knew that the telegram wouldn't get there for four days <laughs> and uh tur- turns out that when she's there turns out that this gentleman happens to be my dad wow. and so he ended up introducing her to and bringing her over to his uh, her his niece and so that's that's sort of how the families met and in fact her friend uh, whose name is Yelitsa Yeramas her son is my cousin Ivo Yeramas who is our vice president and winemaker and uh, responsible for our vineyards. Right, and Evo's so, been there for a long time. For a long time, yeah. since 1986. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's a family connection, and he came, of course, first. And uh, then in 1962, she came about a month before they were married. And then I came along in 1965, and... Uh, had a really wonderful upbringing. You know, I spent so much time with both of my parents. My dad used to take me with him everywhere in the vineyards and the winery. Uh, I remember when he was at Mandavi, he used to have his office and the lab up in the tower. And it was so much fun because there were these rickety wooden stairs that led up, you know, <laughs> circular stairs up to the tower. And I always felt like Rapunzel and, you know, <laughs> out of a fairy tale because it was so, so fun. And, um, yeah, I remember Tim and Davi making me paper airplanes, and uh, it was it was really fun. And I especially enjoyed Chateau Montalena growing up because they had a beautiful lake with these fabulous islands and these amazing pagodas and a, a, a wreck of a junk on the edge and this castle that, you know, in the in the mountain. And it was just it was a kid's paradise. Well, and and, and young adults, we used to, Bo used to have these toga parties after harvest, so that was. 
a whole different experience. But it was up there on the lake. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I, that, never, I never got to go to those. Well, you were too young, my friend. Come on. You know, I guess so. Yeah, I guess was, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then mm-hmm. we got too old to do it, but um, they, were, they were pretty wild. Anyway, mm-hmm. so, so he's, mm-hmm. your dad, so you're growing up, you're just, you're living it. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a Mandavi. So he was at BV for, I think you said nine years? Or nine years. Long. Nine mm-hmm. years. And then mm-hmm. went to Mandavi mm-hmm. and put them mm-hmm. on the map with the Fume block and that 969 mm-hmm. cab. So how long was he at Mandavi? I think four or five years. My gosh, yeah, a little, a little more than that. I have to do right. my my easy math here. But uh, his first vintage at Chateau Montalena was a '72. Right. So, so yeah, how did yeah. how did that switch happen from Mandavi, which was you know the place at that time, to mm-hmm. Montalena, which was just starting, I think, at that point in time. Right, right. And it actually hadn't started yet. Okay. So my dad had, uh, they did some custom crushing. And, and at this point, Robert Mondavi had started out pretty small, mm-hmm. but they've been growing really, really quickly. And um, I remember my dad hiring uh, Zelma Long as, um, as his assistant. And at some point she would say, how come, why is it here that every time I drive by your, you know, I see your car parked at the winery. You're there. You're always there. You're working too much. You need to, you know, so, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, I guess at some point, uh, Lee Pashich, who was one of the owners of, um, of Chateau Montalena also owned a vineyard and he would bring his Chardonnay to Mondavi to have it custom crushed. So he knew that my dad made that 69 Cabernet and he, as well as the other partners who were Ernie Hahn and Jim Barrett, they were mostly fond of uh, red, red Bordeaux and that's, they wanted to make Cabernet. And because my dad had made that 69 Cabernet for Mondavi, they wanted to snag him. So he, uh, he interviewed with them and thought it might be interesting. And then he went back to Robert Mondavi and said, well, Robert, what do you think? You know, these guys are offering me an opportunity to be um, a limited partner. You know, I really enjoy it here, but um, this is a great opportunity. How do you feel about it? And he said, Mike, you need to do what your, where your heart leads you. They hmm. sound like a good group of guys. If it works out, fabulous. If not, please come back because you'll always have a home here. Wow. And uh, so we had, yeah, very, that's, very, no, I'd never very heard generous. that. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. That's so nice. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was well known for his, uh, his generosity mm-hmm. and his, you know, working with other, with other vintners and sharing everything, you know, I mean, what other person would, you know, give a group of vintners and say, here's my wine. Tell me what you think I could improve and how could I do that? You know, vintners don't usually do that, at least uh, not for a long time. I no, think, I think no, things a, have definitely changed. So. Yeah, I mean, well, 73, that's when we, we moved out here um, from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there were only 20 wineries in, in the valley mm-hmm. at that time. So mm-hmm. it was a pretty small, small community. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so mm-hmm. he makes the move to Montalina, which is exciting. He makes this 73 Chardonnay, which... Um, is kind of famous. There's a story behind <laughs> it. And so to those of you who haven't heard about the Paris tasting, um, Violet, if you don't mind, can you fill us in? So the Paris tasting, or otherwise known as the Judgment of Paris, happened in 1976. And it was organized by an Englishman who owned a wine shop and a wine school and his, uh, his partner. Um, so that was Stephen Spurrier and Patricia Gallagher. And uh, they were mostly selling to expatriates. I mean, what Frenchman in their right mind would actually buy French wine from an Englishman? I mean, crazy, nuts. So uh, he wanted to drum up a little bit of publicity. And he and Patricia had been going to California and had been really impressed 
with some of the wines that they were trying. So they thought it would be really fun, since it also happened to be the American Bicentennial, to introduce the French to what was going on in California, um, and also to, you know, drum up some publicity for their, uh, for their uh, wine shop and wine school. So they decided to make it more interesting and really stack the, stack the deck by introducing literally the best French white burgundies and red Bordeaux. So he literally rigged the tasting so that the French would win. <laughs> and then um, send out invitations to all the press. And the press sort of looked at this and went, well, this isn't an event. The French are going to win. Why right. should we bother and waste our time? And so the one uh, press person who did attend happened to be a rookie journalist from Time magazine. And being a rookie, he's like, well, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, if I don't have anything better to do, I'll show up. And he had nothing better to do. And turns out he was the only journalist at the tasting. And because he was the only one, he got the list of the wines. Oh, wow. And at first he also thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be boring for us. The French are going to win. So he not only, Stephen and Patricia, not only stacked it with the best French wines, but they also got the most talented French vintners, chefs, um, professionals, mm -hmm. professionals. And they did a blind tasting. So they didn't know what they were drinking. And for a while, you know, um, um, oh, what's his name? George Tabor, right. you know, just sort of stood by and listened. And then all of a sudden he started hearing something interesting. Ah, oh, this wine has no nose. It must be Californian. <laughs> and he looked down and he's like, oh my gosh, that's one of the top French Oh, because he, he had the list. He yeah, had the yeah. list. And then, oh, finally back to back to france and like uh oh that's napa so like this is getting interesting so it turns out that first they tasted the whites and then the reds my dad 73 montalena came in as the top scoring wine in the entire competition and warren vinyarski's stag's leap cabernet won the red portion and George wrote an article, a small article in Time magazine, which uh, I guess they ended up calling it the shot that was heard around the world. Right, right. Um, and, and horrified, French were horrified. Several of the um, uh, tasters ended up forcefully trying to get their ballots back. Stephen was like literally physically kicked out of places in France because the French just could not believe that he had done something to them. You know, it, oh, it was awful. Wow. And uh, whereas, you know, Americans were not really known for being wine drinkers, you know, as my dad says, well, they drank milk. How can you how can you drink <laughs> milk? Milk's a food, you know. And so um, it, it literally created a wave that sort of kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And on the East Coast, people were more familiar with wines and enjoying wine every day. I drank wine every day. I grew up on it. That's that's what I drank along with my parents. For some reason, kids at school were wondering why it was, you know, gosh, my, your mom cooks. Like, well, how do you eat otherwise? Um, I guess they grew up on TV dinners. So it was a very different, you know, scene on the West Coast. And, you know, it was only special occasions that people drank wine. And that definitely started to change. People became more interested in it, not just as a special beverage, but as something that, you know, eventually, and it took a while, you might be able to enjoy every day as something that's really healthy and enjoyable. And that Hey, by the way, it can also be an incredible work of art. Right. So. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's no. Thanks for telling us that story because it, it did really, you know, it was it, the timing was perfect because grapes were getting replanted after prohibition and 
new wineries are on the scene and new technology led by Mondavi and others and Andre and your dad. And just the quality was improving and we got some great, you know, PR from that. And so people started mm-hmm. paying attention. Um, so, I mean, that's a feather in his cap and that bottle of 73 Shard. Is it true that I think it's on display? There's a bottle of it uh, on display at the Smithsonian. Museum. There is. There is. That's, it was really that's exciting. Pretty, that's I, pretty cool. I mean, come on. It is. Yeah. Well, it's not just the bottle that's there. They also have his suitcase that he oh. took to America. His suitcase was full of actually textbooks as well as his bibliometer. He wanted to make sure that when he finally got a job as a winemaker that he kept up with his studies. So, you know, while he was working at all these other different jobs in, in Vancouver, um, other guys would take breaks and play bocce ball, and he would be standing by the side and reading his textbooks just to make sure that he retained all of that knowledge, that his education didn't go to waste. So the suitcase is there. It's great. I've got it's it's wonderful. I have to see having you know gone there for the opening of that display. It's in it's in it's part of the display. Is part that includes Julia Child's kitchen. And not only is the bottle there and his suitcase, but his famous beret is there also. <laughs> oh, it's 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 very amazing. And my dad still to this day is is in sort of shock and disbelief that you know he's like I'm the only other Croatian there other than Nikola Tesla. Um, right. But another thing happened a few a number of years later. They um, wrote a book out of all the millions of artifacts that are owned. Uh, the Smithsonian put together a book called One Hundred and One Objects That Made American History, hmm. and that bottle of wine is included in that book. So. Very, Man, very, very just, excited to have that. Yeah, it's he. He got a lot of mileage out of that baby. It's well deserved. That's cool. Um, mm-hmm. So that was seventy three, and then and then seventy seven. Um, big change. He uh, branches out from Montalina, and he gets into his gets his own winery. Um, right. And you were a part mm-hmm. of that. You were there. But tell me that story. How did his whole the whole Gergich Hills winery come to be? He had, after the Paris tasting, he had people literally standing in line outside of his door saying, mm. I, I need you, I want you, come be my winemaker. <laughs> and uh, his goal, you know, he was a limited partner at Chateau Montalena with only about 5% by the time that he left. His contract had expired um, and he felt it was about time to start something on his own. And of all the people that uh, came and, uh, you know, begged him to come on, he thought that Austin Hills from the Hills Brothers Coffee family was absolutely the best. He had a background in business. They had their own family winery, the Hills Brothers Coffee uh, Company. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also had vineyards and he was having somebody else make wine for him already. So it seemed uh, a match made in heaven. And so... Austin, as well as his sister, Mary Lee Strebel, uh, we became partners and founded, actually broke the grounds on July 4th of 1977. And that that was very symbolic for my father because he truly felt that he had completely achieved, there was nothing greater he could achieve in America than starting his own company. And to have it be on Independence Day when having you know grown up under the thumb of communism and war to be able to find this freedom in America was just so incredibly inspirational for him. I guess he was telling that to a friend and his friend said, well, Mike, you know, don't, don't be so hasty. And I'm like, well, why not? He says, well, 
you know, you've, you've got the, the county of Napa, you've got the state of California, you've got the federal government. Don't worry, they're all there in partnership with you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. but he still felt it was, he still felt it was well worth it. And uh, actually to this day, uh, the thing that he says he's the most proud of is to provide employment for almost 50 people. Mm -hmm. And with everything that he's achieved, the fact that that's what, you know, he is most proud of is is very dear to my heart. Oh, that's, that's so sweet. That's, that's so sweet and mm -hmm. so true, you know. Um, it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had that opportunity here with folks who've been here a long, long time. And, you know, I've seen their kids grow up. And, mm -hmm. heck, the local sheriff, Oscar uh, Ortiz, you know, was the son of mm -hmm. our first vineyard foreman. You know, he was he was eight yeah. years old when we moved out here. My dad used to help mm -hmm. with his homework. So it's, wow. pretty, it's pretty cool to see that. It's it's nice. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm with your mm -hmm. I'm with your dad on that one all day long. And mm -hmm. hey, and in, in prepping for this podcast, I came across something I never knew about. And this is this great mm -hmm. Chicago showdown of 1980. I, you obviously know about this. Yeah. Yeah. Tell mm -hmm. me. It was like I'd never heard of this thing. That's oh my gosh! What, what it was. So it was a tasting compiled by, and I'm trying to remember the organization, but they had numerous tasters. They tasted over a period of weeks, and they, it were, they were all wine professionals. They tasted in many categories, of course, varietals. Uh, it was all, it was all, sorry, it was all Chardonnay. Uh, they tasted in price categories. They tasted by region. They had, you know, all these semifinals. And essentially, out of 221 of the best Chardonnays in the world, my dad's came number one. It was wow. our 77 Chardonnay. So on the heels of that 76 Paris tasting to then have the 77 um, win such an award, it was pretty amazing. And uh, well, after that, he pretty much became known as the King of Chardonnay. Well, he, yeah, he's always the King of Chardonnay. He was, you know, <laughs> he's, you know, he's not a lumberjack. He's a rock star. Trust me. <laughs> That's yeah, true. I mean, you That's know, true. Because I, mean, I was, um, that was right well, I was 83. Well, I was late 80, late 70s into the 80s. But yeah, Mike Gergich was the guy. Gergich Hill Chardonnay, mm -hmm. that was the go-to. So for all of mm -hmm. us. Um, mm -hmm. So thanks for all that about your dad. It's fascinating. But let's talk about you. So you were growing up at the winery. Um, you were doing every, what? What was that like? Were you doing everything? Did he have you working in the fields, hauling rocks out? What happened? What was that like? Well, I, it was pretty much everything. I mean, I, I did literally grow up in the vineyard and in the winery. So it wasn't just at Gurgich Hills. He would take, when he went to work on the weekends, because I was out of school, I would tag along um, to pretty much to uh, to Mandavi. I don't remember BV, but I do remember Mandavi. I remember Chateau Montalene especially. And I was really disappointed when we had, <laughs> you know, this, this flat ground, it's by the road, there's no lake, there's no cave, there's no gazebos. Um, like, what is this? This is not as fun as the other. But uh, I did end up starting to work there, um, probably on the bottling line. And I did that for many years. Then I started working. I, I worked... Um, harvests i worked in the laboratory and i was very much happy there because i didn't have to talk to people i was not only not social but i was painfully 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 shy and uh, as a musician that was not a very good thing because i had horrible performance anxiety hmm. so the lab was absolutely great i could commune with i can do my titrations and do my so2s and alcohols and it was wonderful and then then my dad started dragging me out and 
bringing me to various events. Now, you know, as a kid, I'd grown up literally, you know, from the time I was very young, going to vintner dinners, going to wine tastings. You know, my mom and dad would always be there. My mom would always be, you know, absolutely vivacious and stylish and just so incredible generous. And my dad, when he would open his mouth and speak, everyone's jaws dropped open because he was such an amazing public speaker. And so I grew up sort of seeing all this from afar never thinking I would ever be in a position that I had to do it myself. And so when my dad started trying to get me to do that stuff, it was, it was terrible. It was, um, I remember the first time he made me speak in public and it was, I remember very well, I was driving him to the Wente brothers restaurant and there were two nights of vintner dinners because everything was sold out. So the second night I drove him there and as I'm getting out of the car, um, he says, Oh, by the way, tonight you're going to talk about the Fumé Blanc. And (laughs) immediately I thought my stomach hit the floor. I'm happy it hit the floor and didn't hit the ceiling. Um, There were a hundred people there. They had a podium with a microphone and, you know, I couldn't eat a thing. I was shaking, a terrible trembling. I got to the podium and I opened my mouth and nothing came out. And for the first time in my life, there was literally not a single word in my brain. I searched, I couldn't, nothing finally came out until I think I said, Fumé Blanc, nice, questions? And so it was, it was, I I could not tell you how horrible I felt. And somebody decided to ask me a very, um, very complex question. And I'm like, oh, I can answer that. You know, so I, and it was so easy once they asked me the questions, right. but my dad kept making me do this and making me do this. And I, I cannot remember how many years, if I knew that I had an event six months out, I'd already start getting terrified for it. Oh, oh my God, I have to speak in front of people, you know? And at some point I went to New York and I w- went to do a seminar with sommeliers and I was already terrified and I, right. I walked up and the host asked the hostess where to go and she sort of looked me up and down very slowly and said, well, you know, they ask very difficult nice, questions. Nice, nice. That's really sweet. Oh, <laughs> you really, really nice. So here I am trembling and getting in there and of course I happen to be wearing pale colors and I stand up and I swirl a glass of Zinfandel and it starts at my head and sort of goes oh. all the way down, my to all the way down to my toes. And I'm like, oh. that's it gonna die that's it no more for me and and for some strange reason I'm like nothing worse could have happened and they didn't throw rotten vegetables at me and I opened my mouth and I made a joke and I I never make jokes (laughs) and since then it's been a lot easier and now apparently nobody knows that I'm painfully shy so that's that's a great thing and you know I was I was mad at my dad about that for a long time but I have to say it was the best thing he ever did so I'm truly grateful he threw you into it Um, Mm -hmm. but you mentioned a little while ago about being a musician tell me about that was that was that the major passion or just or the same as the wine well for me I I had a number of passions music was a huge one literature art um, uh, sewing and design um astronomy. I had way too many passions, but music was always the one that stood out. 
And so when I declared my intent for studying music, um, I, I was told that was not a possibility because I was going to become a winemaker. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, I was going to ask yes. you about that. So they, so they yeah. laid it on, he laid it on thick. Okay. I was oh, worried. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Very, very thick. Very thick. Okay. You know, how are you going to make a living? We're like, well, right. most people don't go into winemaking to make a living. So, you know, but so it was a long story. But being stubborn Croatians, um, he ended up uh, the only application that he signed was for UC Davis. So I went to UC Davis and studied music. <laughs> he wouldn't um, sign other. Oh, that's terrible. I'll have to talk to him about that. It's 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 really okay. I actually had a great education at Davis, and the music program was great. Mm-hmm. When I applied for Indiana University and went through all their entrance exams, I found that I had a better undergraduate education than most people that gone to famous music schools. Hmm. So, oh great, it all worked out well. Oh yeah, it all worked out well. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was at Davis. I loved it. I got a great mm-hmm. education, and not just mm-hmm. in grapes and wine. It was wonderful. Um, right. All right, so. UC Davis, music and some wine classes, and then Indiana for a master's in music. And then what? Did mm-hmm. you go out and work somewhere, or do you, is that when you came back to the winery? Well, I'd actually been away for a while, so I, I took my time and I went back to I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly when I graduated from Davis. So, of course, came back to the winery. And, and before I knew it, I turned 30, and I was in shock because I assumed that by 30, I would already have had my doctorate, but I just gotten so busy that, um, I didn't really think about it. So I, I ended up going back to Indiana university. Um, my dad's lawyer called me up and said, Violet, I have to tell you, you are making a big mistake. This is a very bad thing that you're about to do. And now that I've told you what my dad, your dad told me to tell you, I'm going to say, go girl, have fun, learn lots. <laughs> oh, that's really <laughs> so, great. Um, that's good. That's so good. it's really fun. And I, you know, I kept doing, I, I kept, you know, working for the winery. I, I, I had a whole bunch of report. I kept doing a whole bunch of things administratively and I would do wine, you know, sure. tastings and vintner dinners as well. And then by the time I came back, you know, I'd sort of like, oh, this is actually, I'm really enjoying this. And my dad was like, Oh, I'm I'm really proud that my daughter has a master's in music, and hmm. so it sort of all fell into place, you know, a little later than than either of us thought it would. But um, I've really been, you know, in love with what I do for the longest time. I, you know, I came back and you know did more sales and marketing, more tasting room. I worked in accounting, um, so I pretty much did everything and found that I really enjoyed that ability to do everything and not just be stuck in one particular area where I only had this very specialized field. But, um, you know, and I also had a very different view of business. You know, growing up, I thought that business was dull. It was um, not evil necessary, but just it was all about money. And, you know, and then the more I experienced it, the more I realized that it's, it's about people and people working together to create something bigger than themselves and to create something that benefits all of their families and that it takes a team to be able to do that. And my dad had always been very much a team player. He's totally a rock star, but he always talked about hiring people who were smarter than he was and always surrounding yourself with the best. He always had a winemaking team and we continue with this day. You know, Eve was our winemaker, but we also continue to have that winemaking team. And he's always been very much for education for everybody, 
So many people hire seller workers. They don't educate them. They do things. They don't know why they do those things. They stay at the same pay scale for their entire lives. But here there's always been, you know, my dad always talked about education. Why it is that you're doing that? Mm -hmm. Why are you sterilizing that tank? Why is it that it takes you this much time to do that and then you do that, but you don't do this? I mean, it was, it's always been something that's been very important. And I think that's helped create an atmosphere, a kind of different culture here. You know, it is very family. It's family owned and family operated. And we're very, very proud of that. And, well, and that, uh, and, and that, the whole family aspect, you know, it has sometimes has a lot of different, it's a lot of difference, just, just a different attitude, I think overall. Mm -hmm. and, and it gets shared with the people that work with you. And, uh, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's neat to be a part of it for sure. Right. So you're doing everything. Mm -hmm. You're there, you're full time. Mm -hmm. And then I'm doing my research in the mid nineties. Cause I do remember reading about this. Um, mm -hmm. you guys started, whether it was you or your dad or both of you started a new winery in Croatia. Tell me about that mm -hmm. one, that whole experience. So that actually was my dad, okay. um, and he he did bring, bring me and my cousin along, but he went to Croatia, I'd mentioned. He hadn't been until uh, in, since 1954, which is when he left uh, Yugoslavia. And when he came back in 1991 or 92, I believe it was, many, many prominent Croatians who you know made their name, made a fortune um, outside uh, of um, Yugoslavia, uh, came back and, you know, talk with the government, talk with the president. How can we be of help? How can we help assist you? And um, president uh, talking to my dad said, well, you know, you're famous as a winemaker. You should make have a winery here in Croatia. And my father's idea for founding this this winery, this small winery, which is going to be a tiny little hobby, and, and it, it still is, it, right. only a few thousand cases. Um, but his idea was to create a, an educational winery because after, um, gosh, Croatia used to be known as the premier wine-growing region of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then once communism took over, everything just sort of fell apart. And that idea of really producing quality wines. Um, people got out of the habit. They forgot how to do it. And he really wanted to bring that back to Croatia. Hmm. So his idea was to create a winery in which people could come and be educated. They can they can come and work and learn, learn the techniques, learn everything that he learned throughout his journey after he left Croatia. And uh, that was rather interesting because I think that the the very first thing that uh, the vintners there said to him was, why are you putting your wine in, in Barik? You may as well be throwing it into the Adriatic. You're spoiling it, you know? <laughs> so um, it didn't quite turn out to be the educational experience, but his first wines immediately became known as the Verhunskovina, the top wines of Croatia. Oh, cool. And he made two wines, one Plavitz Mali, which is the grape that he thought he saw outside of Suverain cellars when yeah. he first arrived in Napa, but was actually Zinfandel. Right. And the other white wine called Poship. Okay. And the winery is called Gurgic Vina. We pronounce it Gurgic Vina. Uh, it, the only difference in spelling is that there's no H, but there's an accent over the C that mm -hmm. gives it that CH sound. Vina means wines in Croatia. And so the idea was always to have that connection with our homeland. Um, the winery is beautiful. Um, we had a major um, forest fire essentially in 2015. Um, the winery was mostly intact, but it ruined our temporary warehouse and mm. we lost all of our wines except that which was in barrel and tank. 
Um, but uh, we rebuilt. We have a beautiful new underground cellar now, a beautiful new tasting room. Um, and I'm working on turning the second floor into a small boutique hotel. Oh, cool. It is literally right on the Adriatic. It is such a spectacular location. And uh, due to COVID, unfortunately, it's been sort of on... Um, uh, not on back order, but not quite on standstill, but still waiting on sure, a lot of things. So sure. I'm hoping in the next two years to be able to finish that. But the winery is up and running, and it's a gorgeous place to visit. Um, it was my father's project for uh, very many years, and then uh, Evo is more involved than I am with that. Um, but um, it's a place that I love to go to, and I'm looking forward to finalizing you know, the hotel and apartments. Yeah, well, let, for let, it me, to be a, let me yeah. know when that hotel's open so I can go visit. Now, I, I'm really curious about the wines. Are, do any of the wines make it over here to the States, or are they all sold they, locally? They actually do make it over to the oh, States. So not right. only do we bring those wines there, but we send Gurgitschil's wines over to Croatia. Oh, cool. So yes, we have them available. We have both the Porship and the Plavitz Mali available here at the winery. Good. Okay, and good. due to some compliance, we're not able to ship them to a lot of the states. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, if in there's some that we can, but um, always feel free to come to the winery and visit. So, and in the winery's on a great location. It's I know it's flat, but mm-hmm. it's right right on the road. <laughs> it's right. You, it's you very can't, you easy. Can't you can't, it. can't miss it. Can't, can't miss, miss it. it. That's mm-hmm. so cool. Mm-hmm. And um, another thing your dad got involved with was the whole Roots for Peace back in the late '90s. Um, what was that all about? So I remember very much my dad went to um, an event. I, it was, I can't quite remember what the event was, but he came back and he said, I have met a woman. She is a force of nature and she is working on removing landmines. Hmm. And my father had always been concerned about the landmines that were, you know, left in Croatia. And so he became one of her first supporters. Uh, and the very first vineyard that they demined, her, her, um, her line is essentially mines to vines. So it's essentially ta- removing mines from agricultural land and turning it into productive land. Um, and she, over the course of these many years, developed so that she has quite um, a body of people who work literally very directly, who teach people how it's not just about removing the land and then giving it back to them, but it's teaching them, setting up systems so that they can be productive, efficient, training them. Uh, started in Croatia, has moved on to Vietnam and Afghanistan, um, has gotten support from the United Nations and from the federal government. Um, that's, it's, it's an amazing, really amazing. She was, Heidi Kuhn is the founder, and uh, she was inspired by the words of Princess Diana. They just celebrated their 25th anniversary this year, wow. and we've been very, very proud to support them uh, for all of these many years, and will continue to do so into the future. And we hope that at some point that there are no more landmines mm-hmm. so that her organization might actually become defunct. That would be the best reason for that to happen. Yeah, that's a good goal. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the line, you uh, you married some guy named Colin. Tell me about that. I don't know this guy. 
Tell me about your husband. Well, of course not. He's from Manhattan Beach, and he's a surfer and skateboarder. Um, so he and I, I met. I, he really truly. Um, so he and I met at Indiana University. I was playing harpsichord, and he was playing viola da gamba. And he started out actually as a as a punk rocker and discovered the viola da gamba through a movie called uh, All the Mornings of the World. In that it actually introduces Gerard Depardieu to the American audience. Um, and he played uh, this composer of very super frilly, fancy French music. So he's literally gone from one extreme musically to the other. Uh, he ended up moving to San Francisco, and uh, we just started hanging out in 2000 and literally made beautiful music together. So got married in 2003, um, had a son in 2005, uh, and it's been going strong ever since. That's we great. still play music together. So well, that's yeah. good. That's good. I'm glad mm-hmm. you're doing that. And the son, mm-hmm. the son's, uh, he's, I think he's my daughter's age, 17, 18. So are we looking at yeah. the next, next generation? Are you going to, his granddad <laughs> sat him down and said, um, this is what you're going to do, or is he able to avoid that? <laughs> no, actually, Granddad sat him down and said, "You are very smart and very talented, and do whatever you can. You know, every day, do your best, learn something new, and make a friend. Follow your passions, and you will be able to do whatever you." want to in this world hmm. so i guess it's different when you're a grandparent when you're a parent <laughs> i i i under i understand i'm feeling a bit of that myself you know uh but i always want to make sure that my son is also surrounded with the best of opportunities and is making the most of them and where whatever they choose to do uh, in this life and they have many different interests very very many that range um Wide, wide range of interests mm-hmm. um, and talents. So all of those at some point can be put to use uh, of course, in the future in the wine business. So, of course. So, and, mm-hmm. you know, following one's passion is, is the secret to, um, you know, happiness. Happiness in the, right. in the work and what you do. So uh, good. Absolutely. Good, good, good. Mm-hmm. In 2017, mm-hmm. you took over as president, finally, which is mm-hmm. great. And so mm-hmm. the big question is, how does that work with... With, you know, Dad, I know he's probably backed off a little bit lately, but um, was that a pretty smooth transition? Well, it was actually very interesting. I mean, I'd sort of been doing the work for a long time, um, you know, always in conjunction with my dad and my cousin Evo. Evo had been the winemaker for a long time, and he'd been doing the job for a long time as well. And I had always expected him literally on his deathbed to say, you know, okay, yeah, time time for you to take over, and was frankly in shock when he uh, when he uh, didn't suggest it. He just announced it um, at um, our board meeting, and I imagine it had to do because you know we had some fires in 2017. It was a difficult vintage for for many many mm-hmm. reasons. Um, you know, my dad was evacuated for over a month. Um, oh, wow. It's surprising his house didn't burn down. He was literally in the middle of the Tubbs fire. Mm. Um, and, you know, as you recall, we were surrounded by fire, by right. smoke. We had no smoke taint on our grapes. We have had our, all of our wines analyzed from 2016 on through 2021. As you know, 2020 was another very difficult smoky vintage right. with no smoke taint whatsoever, which we uh, definitely um, 
uh, tribute to our regenerative farming practices. We're also certified organic, but it's the regenerative agriculture that really makes all the difference. Um, so in 2017, also, you know, so many things were happening, and um, I guess I managed to get us through it. And my dad said, "Well, not yeah. bad. You're doing okay." Eh, <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. It was. It did still feel very much like a big transition to me because even though I'd already been doing the work, that feeling of you know, he's the, he's the person who is quite literally the rock star and you know he is a rock star who makes every person that he meets feel like they're the most important person in the world um, when new people come to the tasting room and see him walk in and see the reaction they're like who is this guy he's amazing and uh you know i've personally witnessed so many people telling me about how he's influenced their lives and uh my favorite one being a young gal who told me that you know she came to the winery with her parents and she said that no grown-up had ever spoken to her like my dad spoke to her mm. he talked to her like she was a grown-up and he told her that if she worked hard and if she worked smart she could someday do anything in this world that she wanted even become president of the United States. Wow. And she said that no person, no grown-up ever influenced her as much as he did. Uh, she came to me, I think, in her 30s along with her mom and was crying while telling me the story. And I, you know, to me that, that really, you know, he's made such a difference in so many people's lives that mm -hmm. people don't realize. And um, it's... Yeah, it's tr truly remarkable. I've, no, I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen cry because they've met him. They've told him a story. Of, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. No, I've, you know, whenever I'd run into him, there was always a story. And it's just I was, the, the twinkle in his eye. He's just always, right. you know, he's got something coming. And and he's mm -hmm. getting, he has a big birthday coming up, right? Is that pretty soon? <laughs> yes, he does. I mean, we're talking 100? Is that the right number? 100. So, 100 in uh, about six months. Wow. Mm -hmm. Any Any plans? Mm -hmm. We're gonna we're gonna well, have, a, have a parade or something. What are we gonna do? <laughs> actually, a parade's a great idea, but um, we're definitely having a big party, um, and great. it's gonna be at the winery. And we have a lot of um, very very um, excited people to work with us. Um, Chef uh, Iron Chef Morimoto will be participating. Um, he is somebody that's been our friend and colleague for many years uh they're both immigrants who you know learned they've worked hard they've been successful but they've never taken their success for granted they are humble um, and their passion for what they do and their passion for the people around them is unparalleled so he's excited to be participating and um yeah lots lots more to come on that but we are super excited as is he he uh he uh has always set the goal of uh of at least reaching 100. And even at 99, he has lived longer than any of his ancestors or siblings, which is still a great accomplishment. And of course, you know, when you ask him why he has lived so long, he says, wine what? and woman. <laughs> Not women, woman. <laughs> well, good recipe. I'll have mm -hmm. to keep that one mm -hmm. in mind. So mm -hmm. bring me up to speed on what you guys are making and selling these days. What, what varietals and how can people find them? What do you guys, what's the lineup? Well, we haven't changed too much, but we became 100% estate grown in 2003, 
and um, as a result added a few new varietals that are available pretty much only through the winery, such as our Petite Syrah, um, but we're still most famous for our Chardonnay and for our Cabernet. Um, over the years, we've added special selections, different tiers of wines that are available through our wine club um, and to visitors who visit the winery. But um, I, love, um, I love talking or hearing people's stories about our wines because the, the compliment I hear the most is, I hate Chardonnay. But I love yours. And they say the same with our reds. They say the same of our Zinfandel. It's because our style, we've managed to keep our style. Our style is very subtle, very elegant, very food-friendly, very balanced. It is not a wine that tastes like anyone else's. That's why mm-hmm. it's different. You know, Wine styles have become much more homogenized. People are all shooting for that 100-point score. We are shooting to make wines that make you want more. Right. And that make you want more, not just after two or three sips, but at the very last end of the bottle exactly. or the glass. Well, you, and that's you, not easy. Well, your dad mm-hmm. and your team, they've always made, you know, if I had to use one word for for the Gergich Hills wines, I would use the term elegant. The wines are just mm-hmm. elegant, elegant and flavorful. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and you can count on that. And that's that's big. Mm-hmm. That's big for all of us. So, mm-hmm. Violet, mm-hmm. this has been it fantastic. Is. Great, great, great stories. Things, Some things I've never heard before. So thank you for sharing everything today. Really appreciate your time. Oh, you're most welcome. I appreciate your time as well. And it's always fun to talk about my dad and our family <laughs> story. You take care, and we'll see you out there, and happy happy end of harvest. See you around. Sounds great. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Marlon. Bye-bye. The Gergich story is pretty amazing, going back 100 years and several generations. It was great to have Violet on the podcast and hear all the incredible twists and turns. If you want to check out the winery and their wines, be sure to visit gergich.com. Thanks so much for joining us for a new episode of The Taste. If you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And if you have any thoughts you'd like to share, please send an email to podcast at schafervineyards.com. We'll see you next time.